Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. Take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, James chapter 2 this morning. James chapter 2, we begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 13. At the end of our service today, we will be observing the Lord's Supper. And if you uh, want to participate in the Lord's Supper as a believer, the you don't have the elements. They're in the foyer or in the foyer back here. Uh, pick up one of these little cups so you'll have it in uh, have it available to you. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there or sit down here at my feet, literally at my footstool. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who... Show no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we gather once again this morning under your word and before your throne. We know that you observe us from on high and you listen well. And we want to speak from your word what you have already spoken. 
We want to give what you have given. We want to put on open display before the church all that you have declared. Because as your people, our minds and hearts are not captured by this world or by any aspect of this world. Our minds and hearts and lives are captured by your word. And we know that the proof of our being your people is that the deepest desire of our heart is to obey your word. Not just to listen to it and learn it, but to live it. So open our hearts today to your word once again and teach us by your Holy Spirit and prepare our hearts for the moment and time and just a little while when we will remember what you have done for us in Jesus Christ in his cross and through his resurrection. And we pray in his name. Amen. We all have sins that trouble us, don't we? Every believer in this room has some sin that just seems to nag at you. It, 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 will, it seems will not go away, but one of the main differences, in fact, one of the large differences between a believer and an unbeliever is that an unbeliever can, in fact, persist in sin without guilt and without remorse and without repentance. There may be a pang of conscience in the heart and mind of the unbeliever, but that pang of conscience is simply the fear that we might get caught. And if we get caught, if the transgression is large enough, we, uh, we might be punished publicly for our sin. We might be outed because of our sin, but a believer... A believer cannot persist in sin, any sin, without a sense of guilt, overwhelming guilt. Because the Holy Spirit, who has been implanted in our hearts by the Lord Jesus Christ, convicts us of our sin and calls us to repentance. And we come to repentance because we want to learn and we want to live our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. So my question at the beginning this morning is, how is it that, that someone can profess to be a believer and yet they continue to be captured by some sin and they keep justifying that sin and living out of that sin and their justification is, well, this is just how I was brought up. I grew up in this kind of world and my grandparents taught me this and my parents taught me this and surely my grandparents and parents could not have been wrong and this is just what I believe. Well, that may be true. But if you are a genuine child of God, what matters more to you than anything else is to love God and to demonstrate that love by being obedient to his word, which means one of the deepest desires 
of your heart is to know God through his word. So you lay your life under the word of God. You listen to what the word of God says. And where the word of God comes into conflict with whatever you have been taught, whatever you have been taught has to go. It has to leave. Because your life as a believer is captured and controlled and compelled by the word of God. You may love your mom and daddy and your grandmom and your granddaddy and your Sunday school teachers and whoever. But when what they taught you clashes with the word of God, then you have to say they were wonderful people and they taught me many good things. But what they taught me in this particular area of sin was a lie and does not represent the truth of God. Now I want you to be turning to Mark chapter 12 because we're going to be in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 this morning, but we're going to leave James for a minute and we're going to go over to his brother or his half-brother Jesus. And we're going to see a situation in Mark chapter 12 where a very smart man entered into an encounter with Jesus, and this very smart man was captured and controlled by his culture. He had been taught by his religious culture what it really meant to love God, and there was nothing, not even an encounter with Jesus, that could change him. And he will walk away from Jesus this day unsaved, A man who's very knowledgeable in the word of God, a man who is religiously faithful, a man who by the standards of the culture was morally upright, but he is lost and he is facing the judgment of God and will have gone to hell if he did not repent. Mark chapter 12, look at verse number 28. One of the scribes, a man that would have been knowledgeable of the law of God, would have understood the word of God, would have indeed taught the word of God. He came up because he heard Jesus encounter with the disciples when the disciples were disputing about which one of them was the greatest. And this man observed that and he thought Jesus seemed to be a quite wise man. So he has a question for him. Verse 28, and one of the scribes came up heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered. He goes straight to Scripture. He goes to Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and he says the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. The word means to be committed to God, to be sold out, surrender to God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is, you should will to love him with all of your soul. You should have a passion for him with all your mind. Your thoughts should be captured by the word of God and with all of your strength, which has to do with every part of us. And the second is that if we love the Lord your God, our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we will love our neighbor as ourselves There is no other commandment greater than these. Now look what happens. Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. (laughs) This dude's talking to Jesus. And he's correcting Jesus. You are right. You know what the word means? It means Jesus, you're orthodox. You got good doctrine. 
you are right. And then he says, you have truly said that he is one. There is one God and there's no other beside him. Now look closely at verse 33, because what the scribe does is he tells Jesus that he is orthodox, but he doesn't understand the scripture exactly correctly. And to love him with all the heart, he got that right. You've got to will to love God. But Jesus says, the Bible says that you love God with all your mind. He changes that. With all the understanding. Do you know what that means? You, you, under, you love God as you understand him. You love God as your culture has taught you to understand God. He leaves out soul because you don't need this incredible passion for God with all your strength physically. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He adds to scripture here. He changes scripture and adds to it here that it's more important to love your neighbor, to treat people right, than it is to offer your life as a sacrifice to God in worship. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and the word here is he answered with the wisdom of the world. He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him questions. Do you know you can be right in your life about a lot of things and wrong about something about which Scripture is clear and miss the mark entirely because confronted by your sin, you won't repent. James is writing to show us the contours of the Christian life. What does the Christian life look like in real time? And he begins to unfold this for us in chapter 119. We've been through this, so let me just show you this very quickly. He speaks in imperatives. What are the contours of the Christian life? It is a right heart that is changed by God out of which our speech flows so that our heart is not overwhelmed by irrational anger that persists. Verse one, chapter one, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The contours of the Christian life includes people who not only come to hear the word of God and want to know the word of God, but the word of God transforms them so that they do the word of God. Chapter 1, verse 22. This is an imperative. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And then we come to the third area of concern that James is addressing, and it is partiality or prejudice or racism. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith. That is an imperative. It is not possible to practice partiality, prejudice, racism, and at the same time say, I've got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I want to talk together with us this morning about racism, prejudice, partiality, but I want to do so with you being aware that I know that when we talk about racism, we're talking about the oppression of one ethnic group by another, one ethnic group exalting itself above the other, one ethnic group making itself better than the other. I want you to know that biblically, how many races are there? Just one. It's the human race. How many kinds of people are there in the human race? Two. Those who know God through Jesus Christ and those who don't. But when we speak of racism, it's an invented term to describe a practice of behavior that causes one group to see itself as superior to another group and to set itself over another group. But when I talk about racism, I'm also talking about prejudice. I'm also talking about partiality. Do you know that you could have, you could have ethnic racism, black, white, Hispanic, Asian? You could have economic racism, rich, poor. You could have educational racism. Hey, I've got a PhD. They've never been to school. (laughs) Who cares? Can I go into the weeds? You can have political racism. You know, there are churches in our culture where if you're not red or blue, you know when you go in that you're not welcome. And I can tell you what that church is crying. Don't come here. Please don't come here because we're not a church. We're racist. We've elevated one political party or one economic class or one social class or one educational group above all others. And we show partiality and we practice prejudice in this place. And we've not heard what James says. James is speaking to brothers. Praise God, he's speaking to brothers. Because we struggle with this stuff. We fight this stuff. Show no partiality. Well, how are you going to start? You're going to start by knowing what faith is. You're holding the faith. You're having the faith. So I want you to see... That what James does here is he issues a command, do not show partiality. This command has precise content, the truth of the Bible that he encapsulates in the word faith. And he gives us a clear example. This is what I believe. I believe we hold this Bible up every Sunday and we say this is the inerrant, infallible Fully sufficient word of God. But you and I believe this only to the extent that we practice what it says. Don't, don't keep saying this. Hell, don't keep saying it if we're going to be 
or the kind of church that's captured by other things more than we are the Word of God. Warren Wiersbe says we only believe the Bible is the truth of God to the extent that we do what it says. James says we're to have faith, we're to hold faith. Well, what is faith? It is used in three senses here. Number one, faith is a gift from God that enables us to believe. Do you know when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't do that on your own. The gift of faith was given to you by the Holy Spirit of God when he convicted you of your sin and was calling you to Jesus. And he gave you the gift of faith to turn you from your sin to Jesus. That's faith. But faith is far more than that. Faith is an objective body of content that we know is the Word of God. It's the 66 books of the Bible. To come to Jesus in faith is to desire to know God through Jesus, which means that we want to know Him through His Word. Faith is more than that. Faith is faithfulness. It's ongoing, continuing surrender and submission of all of our lives to all that we know of God through His Word as we seek to live increasingly under the Lordship of Jesus. That's faith. And we want to be people of faith. And that means that we confront the sin of racism, prejudice, partiality, and we say, be gone. James gives us an example. Verse 2. I believe this is a real life example from the church of that period. If a man wearing a gold ring... Now, I'm going to date myself here, but what would you like to call this man? Let's give him a name. Can we call him Mr. Goldfinger? <laughs> ah, Man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. The word assembly here means the local church gathered for worship and the study of God's word. One local church gathered. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, we've got a seat for you. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Do you know in the early church, really up until the middle of the 19th century in most churches, those who had the means to support the church were given the best seats. In fact, in many places in America, you had to buy your seats. Did you know that? You purchased your pew. And you purchased your pew according to the money you had. You can still see that if you go to Charleston, South Carolina and walk into the First Baptist Church of Charleston, South Carolina. Ann and I went there for a conference about eight or ten years ago. And we walked into the church and she said, where do you want to sit? And I said, I want to sit where the rich people would have sat. On the front row. And so we marched up to the front row. She was very uncomfortable because I got a very high pulpit there and you're looking right up at this high pulpit and they're preaching right down to you. Happened all over this country. You got your pew by your power and if you were poor, where did you go? You dudes in the balcony, you're among the poor. They went to the balcony or they stood around the walls or... Every pew had a seat of some kind and they had a footstool. Those footstools turned into prayer rails or prayer altars, but they were intended to get your feet off the floor. And the poor people would sit at people's footstools. So you walked into church and you knew who the rich were and you knew who the poor were by the place they were sitting or not sitting 
So James says this is wrong. Even then, this is wrong. You see someone of significance, power, influence, has money. You, you want the place for them, haven't you? Listen to what he says. Haven't you then made distinctions among yourselves when you come to worship God? There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither poor nor rich. There's neither Asian or Caucasian or African-American or Hispanic. You made distinctions among yourselves. You become judges with evil thoughts. What are the evil thoughts? That there are distinctions among people and we must maintain them even in the worship of God. And then he issues... He issues a warning, three of them here. Look at them. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Now, I want to be very clear here because in the world in which James lives, the poor was not defined primarily economically. The poor were those whose situation in life was such that the only hope they had, the only hope they had was in Jesus. They were desperate for Jesus. If Jesus didn't take care of them, they would die. They were devoted to Jesus, dependent upon Jesus. Economically, they had very little, but their devotion was not to be delivered from poverty, but to be sustained by God. God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith because God is looking for people who don't depend on what we have, but we depend on the one who's given us everything we have. We depend only on God. Verse 6, you, he's talking to the church here. You've dishonored the poor man. He comes into the church to worship God and you treat him differently. You're doing that, church, because you think you will get some benefit from treating those with means better, exalting them above the others, coddling to them. You've dishonored the poor man. And it's the rich people who oppress you and they drag you into court and they are not, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It happens in every age. There were those in the church then who depended more on their means and their money than they did on God and they came to church because it was a part of their ritual and routine but it had no impact on the way they lived their lives and they looked at these poor people who were desperate for God and devoted to God and these poor people brought conviction to them and they hated it and they blasphemed the name of Jesus because they saw the devotion of these who were living in such dependence on God. You know what a church ought to look like? There was a young man that showed up once at a church. I read this as a true story. I can't verify if it is or not. 
It was during a time when if you were a man and you showed up at church, y'all remember these days? If you were a man and you showed up at church, what did you wear every Sunday? Row a suit. I may be the only suit in the room. The rest of you guys, you need to repent. I remember those days when you didn't even think of coming to church without a suit and a tie. This was that kind of day. Young man came in. He had T-shirt, ragged T-shirt, blue jeans, holes in his blue jeans when it wasn't popular to have holes in your blue jeans. Had on sandals. He'd never been to church before. Baseball cap pulled down over his eyes. Walked past the ushers into the building. He'd never been in a church before. He didn't know what to do, but he'd been to a lot of concerts. So he saw these people up on the stage and he walked down to the very front and sat down on the floor, crossed his legs, ready for whatever this was. From the back door came a man, an older man, leader in the church. He had on a three-piece suit. You remember when you wore a vest with the suit? Button all the buttons, but the bottom one? Why? I don't know. He walked all the way down to where this young man was. People were thinking, oh my, he's going to ask him to find a seat or leave. You know what he did? He sat down right beside him, crossed his legs, sat through the whole service. That's a church. And it's a church because it's a church that has listened well to the word of God. What does James do here? He takes us to the Bible. Look at verse 8. Here is the priority for the people of God. We want to be faithful to God. We want to obey His Word. We're not captured by the culture. We're not controlled by the culture. We don't care what the culture says about human relationships or prejudice or racism or partiality or any of those things. We're not listening. In verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you persist in this, if a church persists in this, if you persist in this, professing all the while to be a Christian, you are committing sin. The word here means you are a sinner. And you're under the judgment of that sin. And you are convicted. That means that this sin will convict you before God as one who violates the word of God and you keep doing it without repentance. The only kind of person who could do this is a person who does not know Jesus or a person who professes to know Jesus but doesn't really know Jesus. Well, I got a lot of good features about me and there are a lot of things I do that are good and loving and kind. It's just this one thing. I've always been this way. Listen to what James says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. The root of racism is in our hearts. The root of partiality and prejudice is in our heart, and God's come by His Holy Spirit to change our hearts. So that when we look at people, we see people. We don't see economy, we don't see education, we don't see political party, we don't see nation. Those things are important, but none of them are ultimate. 
Those things are temporal. They're not eternal. And in our day, they can be used of Satan to keep more people out of heaven and send more people to hell than we know. This is what I believe, and I want to end this morning by, as we go toward communion, with two very personal stories. I don't make either one up. up. I live through one. I'm living through the other right now. I believe if you try to be faithful to the Word of God in what the Word of God teaches about any issue, but in our day, particularly about prejudice and partiality and racism, you can, over the course of just a few months, be called a racist one time and a liberal another. I went to a church in 1987 before I came here. I'd been the pastor of this church. I was 34 years old. At that point in my ministry, I'm just moving up the career ladder. You may not like that, but that was who I was. I was in the largest church I thought I would ever be in. I was preaching to 700 plus people every Sunday, 34 years old. Two weeks into my ministry there, the deacons called me to a meeting, called meeting. They sat me down at the front. Here was the topic of the meeting. We want to tell you what you are to do if a family of blacks comes to our church and presents themselves for membership. We have a policy. Now, I had read their constitution and bylaws. I'd read their policies and procedures. I'd never read this one. So I'm all ears. If a family of blacks comes to our church and they come forward at the invitation, this is what you're to do. You're to thank them for being there. You're to send them away. We do not admit black people into membership in this church. Because the only reason a black person would present themselves for membership in this church is to make up or make a fuss in this town. Because we're the biggest church in this town. So that's what we want you to do. I'm 34. I don't know when this happens, but I do know that when you're 34, you are a lot, you're a lot dumber than you think you are. You're not nearly as smart. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? When you're 34, man, you're all wise. I was all wise. But in that moment, God gave me wisdom. I look back and I realize God gave me wisdom. And I just said to them, I can't do that. I can't do that because it is completely contradictory to everything the Bible teaches. So I will not do that. And if this church has this stance, this church has got a lot of problems. I don't care how many buildings you got, and they had a lot of buildings. I don't care how many people you got, you got a lot of problems. But I want to tell you, if a black family starts coming to this church, I will visit in their home. I will find out about their relationship to Jesus as Lord. I will present them for membership if they want to be members of this church. 
Now, I was dumb enough to think <laughs> that God would call all those men to repentance and a revival would break out and they would say, you're the greatest preacher since Moses. But from that day forward, for five years, they were after me and they finally got me. And they got me on the, acute, on the accusation that I was a liberal. That I would not submit myself to the authority of the deacons. I was rebellious. About a year or so ago, the Georgia Baptist Convention elected a vice president, an African-American brother, a good friend of mine whose church ordains women as pastors. We didn't know it when we elected him, but we found out soon thereafter. And I was asked by the Georgia Baptist Convention to do a paper on ordination. And I did. I, I did the best I could do. I, Ann knows. I sweated hours over that paper. I, I studied the Bible as intensely as I ever have. I wanted to make sure. Because I knew that, that racial prejudice was underneath this. And I presented the paper, and the conclusion of the paper is this. The Bible is very clear. The only people that should be ordained by a church are those who serve in the office of pastor whose primary responsibility is the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and that office is for men only. Period. Now you know what I am? I'm a racist. So it's a hard place to know. I'll tell you what's not hard to know as a believer. I can tell you what's not hard to know. Be as faithful as you can to the absolute truth of God's word. And in our time, you will find that you will lose with a lot of people. But I'd rather lose with the whole world and win with God, wouldn't you? Because this is what I know. This is what James says in the end. Look at it. Verse 12, we're all going to be judged under the law of liberty. We're all going to be judged by the standard of the word of God. We all are. And if some of us hold on tenaciously to what we're so committed to do from our culture, there will be judgment, but it will be without mercy because we've shown no mercy. Mercy. Treating people as they don't deserve to be treated. Treating people not with justice, but treating people with mercy. That will always triumph over judgment. Giving people what they don't deserve. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes work. It takes time. Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners from birth and by nature. We acknowledge that we've been 
raised in a context, whether we were raised here or elsewhere, that has taught us much that is true and right and much that is false and wrong. And we bring ourselves, I pray, today and every Sunday under the authority of your word not to hear what this preacher or any other preacher says is right, but to hear what you say is right. We want to bring our lives by your Holy Spirit through your grace in conformity to your word. And so, God, where there are people in this room that need to repent of the persistent practice of partiality and prejudice and racism of any kind, would you so convict us of repentance, of our sin, that we are brought to repentance? And would you remind us, even as we've taken this bread and this cup, of your great love to us and of your wonderful mercy toward us? A mercy that we do not deserve, but you have given to us, to all who believe, you've given this mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in him even as we pray in his name. Amen.